Now, Allison, I know that neither one of us is an attorney by any measure, but I know that Kim K is in the process of becoming an attorney and, you know, has not attended law school either. So that's inspired me to come at you with what I'll call a legal question. Sure. So as you know, Mariah Carey is the queen of Christmas and the star of our Patreon episode this month. But, you know, I just found out that she's rolling out a cookie company And I believe, based on what I found online, that you can only place an order as a wholesaler if you're a restaurant. So I'm wondering how legal is it for us to pretend that our media, what I'll call conglomerate, is also a restaurant group? I think it's exactly what Molly would do. I mean, what wouldn't Molly do for a Christmas present or a cookie? Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm in hot pursuit of Mrs. Guilford, wherever she I may be. I think we all are. I think we all are. I mean, listen, Allison, we're going to get into this, but I'll just say right off the top that Mrs. Guilford, there is a war on Christmas in this book, and there is one casualty, and her name is Mrs. Guilford, and that's all I'll say. Yeah, I mean, you know, given the severity of the backdrop of this story, I know that using the official nomenclature like MIA might be taking it too far. But where is she? You know, like D.B. Cooper and how he allegedly like parachuted off a plane with like two hundred thousand plus dollars and has never been found. That man is dead. (laughs) Yes. Okay, I knew I was going to like scratch an itch there (laughs) with you. And I think there's a new documentary coming out about that whole situation, which I will be taking in. But that is her. It's like, where is she? Has anyone checked the China? Like, did this lady just gift herself stuff in peace because she wasn't appreciated? Or is she just been taken out by Christmas? It does also make me think of the fact that there are different cultures in different times in the United States where people work super seasonally. And it seems like her season is not the holidays. Like she's just taking a month off or two months between Halloween and Christmas. There's a lot going on where people in this book are on the one hand, like it's a war on obviously. So that will affect our Christmas. And then the other half of the book is like, but obviously Christmas is still Christmas and nothing has changed. Yes. Yes. This book has a lot of surprises, a lot of wonderful twists. Um, I'm also learning from, you know, just different websites. Molly's go so hard for Molly. It's like they dominate the comment sections and the review sections. And I have had a much harder time finding mixed reviews for these books than I have for, and I mean, I guess that says something, right? It's like, we're here and we refuse to be silenced. We're here. Some of us are queer and you you better get used to it and you better give us a gift on Christmas, even if you're (laughs) serving in a combat zone, because I I do not care. No, Molly does not. Yeah, Molly doesn't care. Um, so before we jump right into this, how are you? How are things? I'm I'm doing well. I've been watching a lot of really compelling shows. I started A Teacher, which is pretty haunting and disturbing content about a yes. teacher who <laughs> forms an illegal relationship with her student. Um, I think I showed you there's a point where Rihanna is playing and like perfectly over the two of them is the lyric, not really sure how to feel about it. I'm like, (laughs) that's the stance that this show is taking, which is wrong because it is illegal. It's big time illegal. What do you mean? They're like, oh, like it's complicated. Like that is not the take. That is not the take. Not complicated. And just because it is a male student and a female teacher, which is treated very differently in our society, I keep thinking this is a crime. This is not a love story. Um, We know how this goes. Um, I've also finished The Undoing, which was like my undoing. Nobody. Really? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So the ending has not been praised, but I actually really very much liked it. It's like if you don't need six hours of Nicole Kidman pounding, that's cool for you, but I'm not there yet. You're not there. Yeah. I mean, her wig work alone is you know, <laughs> worthy of a Kennedy Center honors. Like if we had a PowerPoint party, I would probably do one on her wig work. You yeah. Yeah past 10, 15 years. 
Also, Hugh Grant, like, I know, I think from that show, like, doesn't he allegedly play a murderer? Allegedly. I can't answer that question without giving a lot away, but he is accused of, I don't mean to sound like his lawyer. He is accused. You know, I've already asked you a legal question, so I feel like that's That's fine. That energy. But what amazes me about him is that I read an interview with him not too long ago where he claimed that he wasn't getting a lot of work or he felt like his agent wasn't, you know, like performing for him. So he fired him and excuse me, he just made a Gmail account (laughs) under a fake name and he pretended Uh to be his own agent. No, this is real. He pretended to be his own agent and he was like, Hugh Grant will not work for that number. Like you must be out of your mind. Or like, he was just like cold emailing people like, hi, like he was so excited to work with you. Like, what's up? Get back to me. And I'm like, is this a thing that you were, you can do? And he was like, it totally worked. This, this is Notting Hill and love actually Hugh Grant set up a fake Gmail. No, this is like post that. So this is like, remember when he made that movie with Sarah Jessica Parker? I like all of his work. All of it? I'm I'm going to stand by all of it. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Well, okay. Yes. So, but it's not like, this was not Hugh Grant of like, he just came off Notting Hill and he was like on a high. This was Hugh Grant of like a few years ago when he was like kind of going through a dry spell. And he was like, listen, just to kind of like mix things up, like, let me, let me see if this changes anything. And he was like, yeah, that worked. That happened. What hope is there for me if Hugh Grant is catfishing the Hollywood industry into hiring him? Like what? I don't know. I've been watching a lot of catfish myself and it's like, I'm asking myself a lot of dark questions about like what I'm doing or should be doing. I think the most wonderful fantasy of all now is just imagining how much Neve believes in literally anything like that's what pulls me back (laughs) wow and it's like you would think that people understand like catfishing as a concept and as a word is so deep in our culture no you think people like would understand at this point that when you think you're in love with someone that you like a fellow tiktoker as the person (laughs) in the episode i watched yesterday was a TikTok, TikTok celeb was in love with what he thought was another TikTok celeb. And he was like, it's weird, though, because she'll never talk to me camera on. And, you know, like she was in my town. She didn't want to meet up or like she blew me off. And it's like this woman is cat. This is not who you think it is. No, but it was no. also more complicated than that. That's another story. But it's all to say, like, wow, man, technology is just like it hides us from ourselves. It hides us from each other. Like, OK, like who has the higher level of self-induced delusion molly thinking that she's getting a full suite of presents at christmas or a tiktok celebrity on catfish it's honestly impossible for me to say at this point i mean we will have to get into this it's you know it's tough it's very tough what what else are you into well i'm very into the event that we're having next week allison so you know in two days from now if you're listening to this on monday you and I will be showing up virtually to talk about the history of friendship. I'm very excited about that. We are releasing this episode on a day that will live in infamy, December 7th, 2020. Looking back on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harder, as we learned in our previous episode. And then December 9th, we were so excited to be contacted by the Connecticut Historical Society to talk about friendship. And we will be making a zine and you can join us for that live, which I think will be very fun. That's right. So if you buy a ticket through their website and we've posted the links on our socials, um, you will get a template for a zine that you can print out and make and fill out while we chat. And then you can send it to a friend. It's a friend zine. Um, So we're very excited for this. That will be fun. I wish I had something more exciting to tell you, Allison, about what I'm doing with my life these days. Like, I don't want to say it's dark, but I mean, it's kind of dark right now. Like I basically have Jessica Beatrice Fletcher, you know, (laughs) keeping me going during like I hate when it gets dark so early. And, you know, not much else to say. Am I recording from my closet right now? Yes. As I said to you, like this feels like a method move. Like I'm going (laughs) back in the closet to channel a young Molly McIntyre. But, you know, like that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, you know, thank you to all the listeners who have reached out with leads on Duncan's sneakers. Like, none of them are available right now, but I'm still keeping that faith. So thank you. I do also just want to quickly mention, I've been really enjoying Tasha as Bachelorette. And I have to say, like, 
you know, on the eighth day, our creator made the staff at this La Quinta because these people are working in a pandemic. They are supporting the general clownery of the men who are being housed at this hotel long term. Everyone is probably being forcibly removed from their families and getting tested. And they made these people contrive a haunted house. That was insane. This past week's episode, I know like some people aren't watching with us and that's fine. But just to say, like, if you ever want to laugh, it's like the fact that they made a haunted house in La Quinta. It's like, I don't know how they think that's not going to blow up in their face at some point where someone's like, because all you would have to do is stay there during healthier times and be like, I can totally see how someone thought this was a haunted house on The Bachelor because like I'm haunted by like the quality of these towels or like whatever. It's like, think about future branding, La Quinta. But also the fact that Easy, like, first of all, he should not be on the show because of allegations that have come out against him. But he was taken on a one-on-one date. The fact that he was screaming so loudly, like, nothing is haunting you this much, sir. Nothing. Nothing in that house. No. I mean, other things, I'm sure. I think what was interesting, um, if you've read the book Ghostland, which I think is really fantastic, and it's about what ghost tours and ghost tourism is actually about in like eight to 10 different cities in the U S and I thought what was interesting about the way they framed it was that site of the La Quinta used to be the property of a very wealthy family and the wife um, of the gentleman who owned the property died in childbirth. And that was framed as sort of the trauma that like turned it into a haunted house And Tasha says with a completely straight face that no one knows whether she was buried on the property, which is now a tennis court. And I kept thinking, this is not sort of like an Anne Boleyn level intrigue. Like that's a highly checkable fact on Ancestry. Right. So it's like, how how do they not know when she died only like what was like 80, 100 years ago? I don't know, though. Speaking of Anne Boleyn, it does remind me that I went when I went to the towers with a friend of mine in college and she's not a history person, which is like not a dig. Like, I don't expect anyone to care about this. We were walking up to start the tour and you literally walk right by where Anne Boleyn was beheaded. And my friend was like, yeah. So knowing that we were probably coming here, I started watching the Tudor. She's like, I don't know. I'm only midway through season one. But she was like, it's not going well with Anne. Like, I just I don't feel good about the marriage. Like, I don't know where where this is going. We're literally walking right by and it's like a plaque that's like, this is where Anne Boleyn was beheaded and she didn't see it. And she was like, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm kind of mixed up inside about it. Like, I don't know. Do you know anything about that? I know it's like not your area. And I was like, Kim, (laughs) need to sit you down real quick before we enter this museum. She doesn't make, they don't make it. And she's like, oh my God, they get divorced. And I was like, let me like push this still further see that plaque and she was like no it became like she was a member of our family and we like literally had to go to every (laughs) site there that was about Anne Boleyn and it was like dark so I guess like theoretically Tasha could have been like my friend and been like I don't really understand how to get information about even very famous people who have passed in traumatic ways but well I blame the producers because it was like you took just kind of a a random family trauma um What you're reminding me of, probably one of the best books I've read this year, and I know I'm literally a year behind because everyone read this last year. I finally got to Educated by Tara Westover and the scenes where she is in college and she's learning for the first time about major world events that were either so different in the way she was taught or were never taught to her at all. And the first time that she sees the word Holocaust, she asks what it is. Mm. And she's um, presumed to be making a joke of it in class, but she literally doesn't have a frame of reference for what it is. And I kept thinking this story would be so different if it was in the age of Wikipedia, because she would have just Wikipedia to everything the the second she got there. But kind of like in a bizarre way, an echo of this book where that major historical event is both a backdrop, but never, never part of, of what we're talking about in the Molly universe. Well, yeah, I think information privilege is such a huge problem. Like that's really spoken about in a smart way in that book, but also it's something that we all need to be thinking about all the time because there's so much complacent ignorance, but also like if you think about yourself as a historical actor, it helps you understand a bit about what assumptions you might make about people in the past. Like, do you know everything that's going on right now in 2020? No. 
no, I don't. So it helps you kind of like ask questions about what's a safe assumption that someone might know or, you know, what is the privilege of information? Like what kind of person might know more about world events or things like that? It's interesting. Or, you know, if you're Molly, you just like don't really clock any information about the news whatsoever, except your news <laughs> about, you know, the arrival of potential gifts, question mark. I'm going to say her love language is gifts and tracking codes from... It's gift giving. It's gift receiving. <laughs> yes, it's gift it receiving. It is. All right. You ready to get into this? I am. I am. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So we are on what feels like now one of many Christmas stories that we have covered. And Molly's surprise is also a product of 1986, just like you. Wow. Which of us has fared better? I think you. But I, you I did think I did, you're not sure. <laughs> I did like this story quite a bit. So Same. I'll give us that quick recap. Molly and her family face a disappointing Christmas. Dad is off at war in England. Molly's grandparents can't come for the holidays, and it looks like there won't be many exciting president presents. Well, also not exciting presents. <laughs> Worst of all, the family hasn't heard from dad for a long time, and they're worried. But Molly decides they should make their own Merry Christmas, filled with the kind of surprises that dad would make. Thanks to Molly, the best surprise of all is waiting for the McIntyres on Christmas morning. I, first of all, that description is wild because it gives Molly all of the agency and like the personal transformation that she goes through from being kind of sour about like potentially a bad Christmas to then like leading the charge to make a good Christmas. Yes. But it's like, first of all, Mrs. Guilford is not in this book. She's her portrait is at the front. She's not here. Yeah. Where is she? I, I, I don't want to make assumptions about the level of her involvement in espionage, but I sure. have to believe that it's pretty high. Well, it's like, why else would she be away from the family at this tender time? I, I also think it's pretty suspicious. So at the perfect time, a package arrives and it says, you know, don't open until Christmas or don't reveal until Christmas. And it's from Mr. McIntyre to the family. So Molly and Jill have to hide the package. And it's like, how much did he have to pay Guilford to drop that off? <laughs> I actually have kind of a theory I would love to float to you about oh. where Miss Guilford is or what kind of service that she's performing for her nation at this time. Yeah. And I don't really know if this is like the time to share this with you, but I'm just going to dive right in because, you know, I'll just start by saying that this book was really confusing to me about Christmas and like what Christmas was like during the war. So I did some reading around that because, you know, like I just had a lot of questions. Like, what is it reasonable to expect people could have by way of decoration, gifts, mm. um, rituals, like what did Christmas feel like? What were the activities, this and that? What limitations? In the course of my reading, I discovered that, you know how Santa sometimes shows up at department stores, Allison? Yes. And it turns out that um, most of the time it's men who play Santa. But during the war, because there were no men around, um, some women actually, you know, serve their country by showing up as Santa Claus. And I have some photos to this effect that I would love to share with you and with our listeners. But my question to you, or I guess like a suggestion is like, did Miss Guilford serve a greater like public? She was like, listen, Miss McIntyre, you got to make your own sticky buns this morning. I'm out of here. 
That was iconic, by the way. Like, I loved the sticky bun moment. And I was like, I absolutely see what you're doing across these books because I love the way that pastry and dessert have been central to all. Me too. The oh early God, girls. Um, Cause you think of Kirsten, it's like, she kind of cornered that market because I think like that was so important to her holiday. And I absolutely respect that. I think what's fascinating is the distance between Kirsten and Molly. It's like having the beautiful sticky buns. She's like, that's first breakfast. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> that's, that's not, nothing. That's um, nothing. I think you've never been more right than you have been about Guilford. Thank and you. I think part of this for Val was sort of what glass ceilings that are not even included in the series can I break? Yeah. And she, I, yeah. <laughs> she was like, watch out, elves. There's glass everywhere. She's like, get out of here. Because, like, is this also the period when we have the first U.S. senator, like, female U.S. senator? Like, yes, this is during that sort of broad era. Is Val going to be weighing in on electoral politics at all in this book ever? Are we going to get an actual event about the war, a reference to a real-time war event, a political decision, anything of the kind? No, especially not, like, grown women's place in it. But she's going to do her own form of feminism, which is, like, Women are going to perform a valuable service that they will completely erase and they'll erase their role in it out of modesty. So I think what's really interesting, you know, joking about Guilford's espionage aside, thinking about Mrs. McIntyre. So thinking about Molly's mother. And I think something that is really kind of fascinating when we look at these first few books and talking about women's service is how it's very compartmentalized in certain ways thinking about her mother being part of the Red Cross locally and having this full-time job, I did think it was a different, interesting choice that that doesn't slip into the family's holidays because much in the same way that Joe is chastised for wanting too much during the Civil War and they give to the Hummels, I really thought this might take a turn where Molly is sort of chastised to give to others and that her mother's like, again, very much like Marmy, that her mother would kind of intervene. But she, I mean, good for her. She seems to kind of leave work at work. Right? Yes. I mean, like, yes. good for her, but. I mean, because there's that scene that you're kind of referencing <laughs> in the beginning of the book where Molly, like, basically jumps out and is like, it's December 21. Like, she's writing dad a letter and she's like, dad, I'm dating this letter. It's December 21. We haven't received your presence yet, dot, dot, dot. Yes. And Jill is reading over her shoulder, which is an act that I absolutely hate. And it makes me like dislike Jill. Like, just have to put that out there. Yeah. And she's like, Molly, that you shouldn't say that to dad because then he's going to feel bad if he hasn't sent us gifts and he receives this. Like, by the time he gets his Christmas, will be over. And if he hasn't sent his gifts, you're going to make him feel bad. And, and Molly's like, like, what do you want me to do about it? And Mrs. <laughs> McIntyre, instead of doing, as you're saying, like the, the Marmy routine of like, well, Molly, what if instead, like, we all buy war bonds or something like that? Because there is a huge push to buy war bonds as Christmas gifts during this period. And instead, Mrs. McIntyre is like, she should write whatever she wants in that letter. And I'm like, what is happening in this house? Like, Mrs. McIntyre is truly the most fascinating character in this book. That's a Brad who you know is going to serve in Nam. Oh, my God, Brad. He's going to come back, but he's not going to be all there. You know that. He's not all there right now. <laughs> Sorry, he's not. Brad pipes up during this. Jill, Jill's the family martyr. She's knitting when everyone else is just trying to relax and write to dad. Maybe dad's present was on a plane that got shot down by the Germans and drowned in the ocean. Ricky does not miss a beat. That's possible. Ricky is like, first of all, important to note, he's abandoned his rebrand as Rich. He's back to Ricky full time. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting that there's so much a push in this book on receiving gifts. And even though the book talks a lot about the fact that the dad is so known within the family for the fun gifts that he either provides the family or makes for the family, they don't really, the narrative, like Val doesn't focus on like them making each other gifts. There's passing references to like, oh, I hid the gifts I made under the, like when the mom tries to come into Molly's room, she's like, I don't want to interrupt Santa's workshop. And Molly's like, don't worry. Like I'm not making anything for anybody <laughs> right now. And she kind of makes a passing reference to like, I have, I've hidden my gifts away, but like, we don't really get to know what those are. 
we're never told what no. they make for each other ever in this book or what Molly makes for her friends or like anything. So it's like dad's so wonderful because he's such a great gift giver, but we're not taking that on. So I think what's interesting comparing these first three, cause they were all written so tight and so close together. Kirsten and Samantha are obsessed with making holiday magic for other people, right? And yes. providing gifts for other people. And I think Molly, when you think of her as part of this kind of trio, like if there was a triptych of the three of them, it would be Kirsten with the hot buns and the candles in the hair, Samantha like desperately trying to decorate and to give and to connect with family. And Molly's like, I am not accepting subpar tinsel. <laughs> And I, I think that makes Molly in some ways like a, a very realistic upper middle class girl of this time yes. where like we're very aware that her inconveniences are slight compared to other people, but they wound her a lot. Like when she has the heart to heart with Jill and Jill basically says, I don't want things to feel the same because then it hurts worse that dad isn't here. And yes. Molly being nine is basically saying, no, no, no. It's even more important that it feel exactly the same. And I think that's where you see that continuity with her, Kirsten and Samantha. They're like desperate for things surrounding them to feel homey. Like they're, they're all yeah. grasping for that. I think that's interesting too, because we talked last time about the transition from defining like the primary way of defining yourself as a citizen to a consumer, which like mm -hmm. kind of takes place beginning in this period and certainly into the fifties and beyond. But it's interesting that the way that home is constructed in all of the instances you've just named explicitly link consumption to home and self. And Molly is so central to that in this book by saying, and like, it's no surprise the thing that she wants is a doll, right? For American girl, it's like, like always be selling is like the Val trip <laughs> motto. Uh, but it's interesting that that's the thing that defines her. And it comes out really in a stark relief with Jill talking about how they should decorate the Christmas tree. So basically, we open this book with Molly worrying about getting gifts, and they're all hyped up because the next day the grandparents are coming to get them to get a Christmas tree with them and decorate and really like usher in the holiday together. And it turns out the hot, the grandparents don't make it because of a flat tire. And then Jill starts to sort of like wax on how we should decorate the tree, and is basically like, "Listen, we need to do a, like a patriotic aesthetic this year." And Molly pushes back in like a big bad way. But it's interesting that her whole like Jill's way of processing this, as you're saying, is to like make everything different so they can feel the difference of dad not being there, but also to really center the war. Mm -hmm. And Molly's basically like, I don't want to go there. No. And I kind of respect that, you know, like Guilford wrote herself out of the narrative. Yeah. Molly is desperate for fun. She's desperate for the Christmas tree. And there are these tender moments where you see kind of like cracking through, like she makes a wish and her only hope is that her dad is okay, right? Like she's coping with things very differently. And I think if you were to put these books next to the Josefina books, especially it's like little girls who need different things or need to deal with parental separation, grief in different ways, I think are just going to resonate completely differently with these girls. Like yeah. the, the way that they go through the world is so, so different because I think in a lot of ways, I had a harder time connecting with some of the emotionally climactic moments of Josefina because it felt like she had to give everything of herself for other people to be okay. Right. And I think with Molly, when those moments of tenderness and family connection come, they're kind of surprising. Like you don't really see them coming yes. because you think she's obsessed with, as an example, they're scrounging up their pennies to get a tree. And then you realize not unlike a Samantha, it's really about the decorating with her family, but yes. on a surface level, she's, she's obsessed with the thing, right. With like getting the right stuff in the house. 
I'm actually happy you brought up like the parenting differences across the books, because that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, too, that actually like in his absence, I think the dad is doing a really great job, like parenting his children through this really traumatic time by really kind of emphasizing the differences in their roles in the family. Mm -hmm. Like he is not in his message to them, his subsequent message to them on the radio and in the gifts, asking them in any way to take on. Uh, or give too much of themselves to make him okay. Like he is not making it their responsibility to help him through the war. Um, if any, and he, that's also a difference from little women that of course, mm-hmm. like the dad gets sick and then it's like the whole family has to readjust to like, make sure the dad's okay. They all have to give them themselves all the time. We won't even get into the Beth of it all. But with Molly, it's like the, her dad is a person who like lives in her imagination while he's away as the man who gave her like yo-yos and fun gifts previous Christmases and was like a person who centered fun and, and made it okay to be an eight or nine year old kid and to only think about eight or nine year old kid things. Mm. And the fact that the mom is also continuing that, like you mentioned before, that her work stays outside the home. And I'm wondering to a certain extent if that's a conscious choice, like Mm -hmm. to have such a stark separation, because it's like if all you can preserve is the family, the feeling, the feeling of family in the house in which everyone is only expected to carry the weight of their age, then that kind of stark separation seems super healthy um, even as it is a sign of privilege, like they get to make that decision to like opt in or opt out. I think this book reminds you too of like the incredible distance between these people and many people living in the States today with how they can keep in touch. And just like the extent to which not hearing from him might mean nothing and not hearing from him might mean something huge has happened. And thinking about the 20th century, Christmases particularly have either been, you know, unofficial armistice times or incredibly violent, right? Like it's gone all different ways. And I was looking up events that actually happened in this winter of 43 and basically right after. So this Christmas happened to fall on a weekend and basically right after the weekend was over, like FDR ramped up some pretty significant anti-labor moves. Um, and mm. this this year is also the year when it became, on the one hand, um, like the U.S. became even more hyper-militarized. The Pentagon was created in 43. And on the other hand, FDR was really pushing anti-union movements saying, you know, any section of industry that he wanted to take over, he could, that the federal government could, hyping up rations and also saying people who went on strike were making an act against the government. So Mm. like this is kind of like one of those Christmases where I'm not saying it wasn't violent because it was, but it's like the calm right before yet another incredibly intense storm. Um, And to not know how your dad is doing in England, we don't, do we know that he's in London or do we just have like a vague? I think she said he's in London, I think, or that's where she thinks he is in book one um, or no, in book two in her uh, classroom exercise. Um, But I think that's all we know so far. When it's like grandma and grandpa, like even they're missing, you know, because of a tire. Yeah. And I mean, like, let's think about that for a second. Like the peek into the past pointed out that because of the rations on gas and rubber that like Mm. you couldn't be going on super long trips anyway. So you kind of have to wonder, it's like, what if they had like they set out and they didn't have enough gas to get home or like they didn't have like, you know, simple things become precarious or things get complicated fast. And, you know, it's just it's hard to think too, like life cycle wise, like what's the life of these grandparents like that? Maybe they're caretakers and support system, like maybe they're off serving in the war, like taking care of their families or working for the Red Cross, like it's changing the life of the family in such intense ways. So it's like, this is a story about being upset about a Christmas tree not happening, but also about like many things not happening. And just to say about Christmas trees, I, there is a fact sheet by the World War II Museum, which we will share. And something I learned from this is that um, the, the issue is that they get this like Charlie Brown tree because it's all they can afford, um, which I'm learning in this in 1941, a five foot Christmas tree could be purchased for 75 cents. So putting that out there. But something that was interesting is 
Um, I guess they're saying in this period, because of the short supply of manpower to cut the trees down and railroad space to ship the trees to market, Americans rushed to buy American-made Visca artificial trees. Mm. So you don't like an artificial tree? I've had an artificial tree. I just, I, I grew up with like a big tree from the earth and it was also sort of a nightmare because it was a lot of, I mean, you're, you're tending to a plant for like six weeks. You know, like I just, I wasn't raised that way. I didn't grow up on a Christmas tree farm like Taylor Swift <laughs> or I guess, you know, in the wild like you maybe. But my mom basically at different times has claimed to be allergic to various things she didn't want to take on. So like Love. my mom was allergic to cats, dogs, all pets except goldfish and real Christmas trees. So I've only ever known a fake tree. Mm. But, you know, and I light a candle that smells like an evergreen tree and I or a pine tree and I'm like, it's all it's all happening here. I mean, not to be too meta, but like my Molly came to me from underneath a very large family cut. I'm just, I'm being serious. Like she did. Shade. So I got really curious and I was thinking like, if I wanted to recreate Molly's Christmas, like I wanted to get my Molly some treats. Like, do you want to know what that would run me if I were to do that today? Please. I need to know. So if I needed an a new version of her evergreen velvet dress, I have one that my mother made me. But if I needed like the perfect outfit, that's going to cost me about 50 plus shipping. For I'm sorry, for the Molly evergreen, like the actual Molly dress? For like a doll, for a, a little, right. like a little. $50? $50. So not a person. So if I want to get her stocking, I'm looking at upwards of $150 to recreate that whole ensemble. If I want to get her Christmas box, I'm looking at $60 and her radio goes between $38 to $170. What? So I could be spending like three to $400 to make her magic come true compared to like four back then. That is, I can't even fathom that. The market for AG, like OG AG goods is so out of control right now. Like it's. Would it's you wild. wear her green dress? Yes. I think it's iconic. I'm not really a dress person. As you know, I would prefer like her denim flannel yeah. outfit from early in this book, which I think is iconic. But I, I think this is a beautiful dress. Like I love this dress. What about her pajamas? Those are iconic. I love the pajamas. Okay. My surprise to you is I got us each a pair of like. What? Okay. I wish the- <laughs> I got us the Target version, but it's really. Is this nice. real? Did this you is- really do this? No, I really did. Oh my God, Allison. It came, it came in today. It's next to me. They're super cute. So we'll have to, we'll have to do like a movie night or something where we dress up and we put on in the our radio. PJs. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God, Allison, I'm freaking out. I can't believe you did this. Oh my God. Thank you. A listener sent it to pajamas. us. I pajamas. Oh my God. I'm, I can't believe, I remember those pajamas being in the catalog and desperately wanting them, but it seemed like so expensive to me. Like I just like never engaged that. So wow, you're like writing a historical wrong and I love Target. That's my safe space. I will. So a listener said like, have you seen these pajamas? They're a hundred percent the Molly pajamas. And I said, yes, they are. And I earmarked it for later and then acquired them myself. Molly is the reason that I would wear like as a child and sometimes still like a big robe and tie it tightly around the waist. Like as if I was headed to like <laughs> a, a gentleman's yacht club, like not really Maybe sure. You are. Who knows? <laughs> like Molly has such an interesting sense of style. And I even loved like, there's so many funny comments when they're opening up the presents, like her sister, gets a a headpiece um, and a scarf and they say, oh, like it's made out of silk from a parachute. And I'm thinking like, don't we need that for the soldiers? But yes, not in this book. Like how did dad, so when dad sends this package and he's like, hide this till Christmas. And then Molly basically like, I've never felt more Molly, although I'm sure (laughs) I have in other ways. Basically, Molly can't like has zero chill around hiding this box like they hide it in the loft, like the scene of the former crime where she and her two friends hid from Allison with one L who is very nicely trying to invite them over for a friend hangout. (laughs) And like basically no one is going up to this loft like her, her the secret will not like come out and yet she has zero chill around it. It's like she's like in pain almost like hiding this and then they open the which is very mean like I'm incapable of lying like I can't keep anything to myself it's very difficult I threw you a surprise shower once and like it almost like, <laughs> killed me um but 
like when they open the gifts, it's very strange to me how the dad had access to like basically Ricky wanted a helmet and something else were related. And I'm like, sorry, how can dad take what I'm sure are like very needed supplies and just casually send them? I did a little digging and I did find that like servicemen abroad were making toys and gifts for family members at home. But the gifts they were making were like, actually, I found a photo that I'll share of a man made like a full on like beautiful dollhouse in Mm. the Royal Navy with all the furniture. Someone else made like toy ships. And it's like, okay, you can kind of see how they're using like found materials to make things for kids. Why are we sending war materials and equipment to Rich? I'll (laughs) give him that for Christmas. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, the part where Brad gets his bundle, because they each get a bundle, he gets a canteen and a soldier's hat. I guess Santa asked Dad to get them. And I think where Val kind of like covers some of her tracks is like Santa does a lot of work in this book to elide like what what is occurring with these packages and what I would say is Guilford's intervention. Wow. I just like Guilford is so mysterious in this book that I'm like, in a way, she's the hero. I need to send you this right now so you can see it. When speaking of Guilford and her role as Santa Claus, which I'm saying is like actually real. By the way, I don't know if I ever told you this, Allison, but like that was like my feminist awakening was in school. We had to write letters to Santa Claus. And for whatever reason, I have no idea what got into me. I was like, I'm sorry, but does anyone ever write to Mrs. Claus? (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure she's contributing to this. And like, maybe she would like a card from time to time. And at the bottom, I wrote, I insisted on writing to her and I wrote pow, power of women. And my teacher sent it home and I thought I was in trouble. And I think she just wrote something that was like, she's a live one. And my parents were like, thumbs up. Like, what is happening with you? In my feminist vision, she does absolutely nothing. Oh, my God. That's actually amazing. Yes. But in these photos that we'll share, I just wanted you to see, like, it's so obvious that it's like a woman (laughs) being Father Christmas. It's happening in England. It's it's so cute, but also just like a shock. Like this lady could have worked a little bit harder on her costume is all I'm going to say. Yeah, there's some really cool resources on how people like struggled to celebrate during the war or kind of what we would think of as like hacks, like different things people did to still make the spirit magical. These photos you sent me, they're reminding me. I had a British student years ago and we got talking about chocolate one day in class. And she said that um, so many people she knew in her community of a certain generation associated Americans with Hershey bars because Hershey bars were these densely caloric snacks, I guess, are just kind of like, you know, little infusion for some pep that were given to American soldiers. And so sometimes they would like hand out pieces of chocolate bars to English children and that this became a thing that people associated them with. And I think of that whenever you're at the airport or you're somewhere and they ask you to give a candy bar to a service member, um, mm. like the different ways that some of these things kind of still like linger on into the present. It's interesting. I mean, you know, I would hope that we would give them like different chocolate than Hershey chocolate at this point. It's like, you know, I mean, it's fine, but like there's other stuff out there. Yeah. There's, you know, so there was an interesting review that I found from someone named Charlotte and she gave this book three stars. And I want to unpack this just very briefly because this is what she writes. This book has themes of knitting, hope, sticky buns, decorating the tree, surprises, snow, Christmas carols, packages, peace on earth, and the radio. And I guess I'm wondering, like, in what world that's a middle-of-the-road cultural product. That's a strange read. Like, she gave that three out of five? Three out of five, whereas a different Mary, not you, gave it an A with four pluses. What kind of rating system? What site is this? Like, what is happening? I don't divulge my sources. I, I okay. go to a few different. No, I'm kidding. I, I go to the same places, but it's I, just oh, wow. OK, I do find this really interesting kind of dynamic where there are people, of course, who don't like Molly. I'm not I'm, I'm just going to call out a name. Someone named Rebecca said, I think Molly is my least favorite. I don't, I'm not calling you out. I'm just naming you. Excuse me. But I do think it's interesting. Like there are people who fiercely love Molly, but I also find that Molly hasn't brought out the same kind of level of contention 
And I think part of that is like the backdrop in which she is situated feels really different for people, right? Like when we were dealing with Kirsten, we got into a lot of issues of immigration and indigenous culture and settler colonialism. And I think like there's a lot less conversation around that, whereas Felicity, it's like, okay, people know enough and then people have concerns about representation of enslaved people. Molly's actual context, I've just noticed, like draws out a lot less commentary from people. And I think that's interesting because it kind of gets at the greatest generation of it all, too, which is like, why are people less willing to be critical of representations of World War II era history? And why do we need this to be purely a positive story of victory? Like, Mm. what is at stake in framing histories of this period this way and only centering on certain kinds of subjects or actors? And to me, like, Molly's exciting because she's not, in my mind, part of this larger, like, greatest generation thing that I was certainly exposed to growing up that, you know, my dad is, like, I would say, like, a history buff of, like, military history And he would expose us to a lot of, like, war films. Um, And I've seen, like, to me, World War II is a thing that was about John Wayne. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bing Crosby and White Christmas being, like, a man who was definitely too old to be serving in the war, like, when he's depicted as doing so. So to read Molly, I was like, wow, you could actually think about World War II from the perspective of, like, somebody my age. That's really interesting. But... You know, you don't, this is like rare. You don't think about like children in World War II history, like popular representations. But I think it's, so maybe people are less willing to be critical because they're happy to see like representation that's not John Wayne. Mm. I mean, I will, I will go hard for White Christmas. It is, I know that it has its problems. Like I'm not going to defend that, but like Rosemary Clooney is like, I love her, period. I love the, like, there's so much like, I love watching that movie. I love talking with people about how they feel about the choreography number. Mm-hmm. Controversial. Um, you know, like, I have the DVD where you could hear Rosemary Clooney's commentary before she passed. Like, she sat and, like, watched the whole thing and they they recorded it. And it's amazing. Like, she gives all this, like, weird background information. R.I.P. Well, I think that's an interesting story, too, because it's like, that's what would happen kind of next for Mr. McIntyre. Like, he's going to come back at some point and he has to readjust. And like, Guilford has to give up the Santa suit. You know what I mean? Like, metaphorically, a lot of things like, you know, we don't get this dialogue. I don't think maybe we will. Like, at some point, Mr. McIntyre comes back. I do know that. And Mrs. McIntyre has done just fine running everything without him. Yes. And it's like, who is Brad going to listen to when Mr. M is back? Well, yeah. And it's like to keep with White Christmas for a second, there's a song in that movie that's called um, What Do You Do With a General mm-hmm. When He Stops Being a General? And interestingly, that movie kind of like displaces a bigger issue, which is like, what do you do with Rosemary Clooney when she can like when she actually gets married and is expected to stop being a singer or a professional entertainer. Like when the two male leads in that movie come home for the war, their lives don't really change except that they glow up as professional showbiz people. But the, for the women whom they marry at the culmination of the film, you wonder like, what does the sequel look like for them? Like for the men, it's probably unchanged for the women. It's like a retreat to domesticity. And is that progress? Is that what the war was about? I mean, for Molly, it's about gifts. I mean, her four freedoms are like gift giving, gift receiving, (laughs) conversations about gifts. Like it's all like the receiving of gifts is 100% her love language. You know, and with that said, to give her credit, like really the emotional high point of this book is after the family. And we haven't talked about a lot of plot points because like you, you kind of know them all. Like Molly is bummed about decorations. They rectify that somewhat. They get secret presents from their father. Molly gets a doll. And when they're all sitting around kind of relaxing at the end of the holiday, they turn on the radio. And I mean, honestly, I think like one of the most emotional scenes we've read so far is just by chance, her father coming on the radio and giving them a Christmas greeting. And I think what's really different about their world and even the world of, say, the 1980s, that kind of serendipity, I think, largely doesn't happen in the world as much Mm-mm. anymore. Like, I don't think that that happens. There's a lot about his life. Like, the USO still exists. There are still performances by the USO. Um, there are still communication channels. But, like, that happenstance of them turning on the radio and their father giving this greeting is, like, 
obviously very special. And I don't know what the equivalent of that would be today. You know, like you just the algorithm shows you a TikTok of, you know, your dad doing a dance to God knows what. And you're like, wow, dad. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. I knew we couldn't be together on Christmas, but I didn't expect this routine to uh, Justin Bieber holy. So thank you, dad. So I didn't know that the USO was really, really new when he would have been serving. For some reason, I thought it predated World War II, but it, it doesn't. And one of the reasons why it was created under Roosevelt was not really for the soldiers, but for the communities of people who lived around bases. Because mm. all of a sudden, they even before the U.S. formally entered the war, they were enlisting people at these really high rates. And they're creating these compounds of servicemen who are not at war yet, but who are preparing for war. And part of the impetus for the USO was to provide what they called like wholesome entertainment for those men. So much like in earlier wars, it was like another way to create another barrier to men getting STDs. And I was just going to say, like, do you think the USO is the legacy of progressivism that still exists by World War II? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Like a a lot of the emphasis is on creating outlets. Um, It's very much like a Siemens Bethel going all the way back to the 17 or 18, you know, port communities, the people who live in that community set Mm. up a network for what they would consider appropriate entertainment I found an article in Time magazine where they talked about how, quote, a girl on the street likes a man in uniform. So this was to get men away from sex workers and to keep sex workers away from men by having them be entertained by like Bob Hope or whoever. Interesting. Yeah. And I know that there's actually a I'll see if I can find the link to this, but. There's a like a movie called like at the stage door canteen, which was a place where like raising where the Hollywood stars would show up and be filmed like selling cigarettes or like giving out cigarettes to servicemen and raising money for war bonds and like also doing work through the USO. So like weirdly, you have like Betty Davis entertaining as part of the USO and it like brings out all of these Hollywood like it's an integration of like the entertainment industry in service of the war effort, Mm. which always sometimes looks strange. Like if you see like celebrities in the service of like national projects like sometimes it makes sense sometimes it's kind of awkward sometimes it's kid rock I was just thinking that actually my brother my younger brother when we were in high school like for some reason went through a kid rock phase and it was like a really dark time in our family that's all I'm gonna say I mean he's one of the wealthier he's he's an interesting person to me because much like Adam Sandler who just refuses to stop wearing like oversized basketball shorts indeed it's like they're of an elite class in their bank accounts but in no other way like they just refuse to participate. It's interesting. Yeah. It, it's, it's, oof, yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting person. Um, so I have like a vision of what okay. happened to Molly between books three and four. Do you want to know what it is? Please tell me. So the next time, like we're going to swing around to her, it's going to be her birthday. Oh my and God. we know that that's April, 1944. Like we know that that's coming. Do you know what was created in 1943? I don't. The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Oh, God. Allison, you know what this is going to do to me. Yeah. I think between her ninth and 10th birthday is the first time that Mary, or sorry, the first time that Molly. (laughs) Freudian slip. (laughs) Watches baseball. And I think like by her 10th birthday, she's like, I think I know. Like, I think I know what I want my life to be about. And she starts practicing with Guilford who has all this extra money from the Santa suit. And by 1945, people tell Molly to give it up. Oh my God. What a heartbreaking arc. And she's like, listen, I need to be a Rockford peach or nothing. And all they're like, do you want to like help can some peaches for the war effort? And she's like, I am a peach (laughs) period. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh God. Now you're making me flash to that documentary about the woman who was in the all American girls baseball league. And it's like, that was a problematic documentary, but the story did reach me. And also like, I think something in this book that signals that you're correct is that we do have an iconic illustration in this book on page eight, in which we see Molly in her iconic denim flannel and saddle shoe attire. Yes. And to me, like the saddle shoes are iconic. That's where I picked up on them. It was like, I need to own a pair of these. 
I still wear saddle shoes quite frequently. I love them. And, you know, it's just, I feel like she's heading in that direction. I, I think, you know, Undersung Hero, the illustrator of this series, page 21, Jill is on the telephone. Jill is a classic older sister in, in wonderful <laughs> and uh, various sundry ways. And Molly is just giving her this look that is so perfect between siblings. It's like Brad is doing God knows what with the (laughs) wires, right? I mean, this is so what it's like to be part of a multi-sibling family at home. And Molly is wearing her jeans, as you say. To me, it's all in the look that she's giving Jill because Jill is about to drop some bad news that grandma and grandpa are not coming. And I was like, I love this scene. Like, there's something about the way this family is very real to me. And yes, as others have said, their life is not that different. Like, their middle class life is not that different from 30, 40 years later. Yeah. And I think something that comes through too is like the sense of the order of siblings having a certain like personality is like affiliation comes through in ways that I haven't noticed in previous books where it's like Jill is the eldest is like clearly an oldest child. Like that is her personality. And Molly is very much like middle child syndrome, which like I can also relate to. And Rick and Brad are like, I'm not even sure what, but like everyone is just sort of like on the Brad train because like Brad's the baby and it's like, he's sort of cute, but he also says stuff that's like totally left field. But to reaffirm what we put forward as a hypothesis in book one, Molly is a hundred percent her mother's favorite because it's not close. Realistically, like she should not be asking the dad if he's shipped presents already, because that would make him feel really bad when he gets that letter, if it didn't work out. Yes, And the mom is like, go for it. That was like, that was to me like the smoking gun. (laughs) Like that is so obviously inappropriate and like shaming and guilt inducing like the very last thing this man needs, like, like helping and caring for people who have been injured in the war. And instead the mom's like, roll that dice, Molly, do whatever you should do what you feel. And Jill's like, (laughs) excuse me, probably remembering like a million times when the mom has shut her down from wanting to like speak her truth. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I do also think there's a future if Molly doesn't play baseball. I think there's a very real future where she becomes a nurse. Like this is the third time now where we've seen an instance and it starts with the holidays where she kind of bats around the idea of maybe being a nurse again for Halloween. The way that that doll is so special to her and the way that the doll that she receives like represents something. And it's like, it doesn't take a trained psychologist to also figure out like it's special to her because if she was a nurse, she could be with her father. Yep. And be like her mom. Who's exactly. Exactly. Um, or working at least for the Red Cross. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of wish fulfillment in both directions with the gifts. And that's that's really significant. Man, Val, you did it again. You did it again. She did it again. And I have to say like that I read in a lot of reviews, people saying that when he comes over the radio, like it's so genuinely exciting. And I mean, to me, it totally, it made me very emotional because I, I forgot it. I really didn't expect it. And they've kind of had the excitement of unwrapping things. And then just thinking about like the way she's so happy to be surprised Like I relate to Molly so much because she's tried to control every element of this holiday. But the thing that actually really reaches her is this like complete shock. Yes. And, and like, that's sort of how life is like, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans or whatever that quote is. Like you're saying she tried to control everything and yet she couldn't like, it is this improvised moment or this like serendipitous moment that brings like the greatest emotional payoff, both for Molly and for us as readers. Yeah. And it is such a touching moment, even though, you know, it's coming or like, if you've read it before, you know, it's coming. It's like, it, it still reaches you. It's a nice, like, I honestly, I really prefer, like, the main text of these books. Um, So she's, like, she's already trying to think, like, she kept the echo of dad's voice. She never wanted it to fade. Dad, what he said was still true. There were always surprises at Christmas. And I think that's so beautiful and and authentic to a nine-year-old. And then the way that the peek into the past ends, it's it's very much like other books uh, in her series, it's so bizarrely pat and, mm-hmm. and strange. So 
while Molly's at church, they sing Christmas carols and the way that they chose to end the peek into the past is by referencing those and saying, perhaps the war made them think about the real meanings of Christmas and listen more carefully to the words from the story of the first Christmas on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And I was sort of like, that's not it. But you know what? That made I agree with you, but that made me think a lot about. So after that, I went and looked at newspaper clippings of ads about Christmas during the war that were basically mm. like, you know, he's not home, but that doesn't mean that like Christmas can't be special because Christmas is a feeling and you're going to have it again someday. And he's having he's thinking about you wherever he is and this and that. And it kind of gets me thinking about the fact that I think what I'm bumping up against in this is not that people writing peek into the past don't understand how to talk about Christmas in a productive way as it was during the war. I think we don't have a productive way, generally speaking, of talking about what we mean when we talk about the Christmas season, Mm. because obviously there's the religious event around which it's centered. But then there's all these other cultural things that go with it that are not necessarily directly related. And there's this like kind of just if you've ever watched a Hallmark Christmas movie, you kind of probably know what I'm talking about, which is like people just make assumptions like, well, anything can happen because it's Christmas. And it's like, well, why? What does that (laughs) mean? But I mean, we just all have this feeling that's like, well, it's Christmas equals special time equals like (laughs) magical things will happen. And I think it's just so vague that you just sort of like people set their faith in it or their store in it. And we just all passively accept this, that then it makes it very difficult to talk about or like assign any kind of language to. No. And I, I think in some ways that kind of magical thinking, as you're saying, it has a role, right? Like, you right. know, that for service people, even today, it's like there is a rise in people giving because they want people to have a good Christmas, right? Like I'm in mutual aid groups online and I see different posts and there's already an effort of like people were trying to solicit donations for holiday decorations. And it was like, so people will have a good holiday, right? Like that this has to feel different. I pulled up a newspaper from like a random county in Illinois from December, 1943. And like you're saying, this is theoretically a secular print. And yet every single ad is transformed into a Christmas and holiday ad. Um, I, I loved this one for a doctor, you know, like a, you know, Mr. M type. And it says there'll always be Christmas. And there's a V Uh, flag in the window surrounded by a wreath and it says bleak december it's passing strange that this month which furnaces the least light out of doors should furnish the most light within it's the spirit of christmas and the merriest of christmases to you and it's like i have no idea what this doctor does like this was not a productive ad in that regard um you know, wherever he is in in Joliet, Illinois, but you're exactly right. Like it permeates everything. I think not on like the Samantha folks who were like vaguely pro child labor. I think they're just in very deep. I agree. Like, I think they've probably done a ton of research and they're sort of like high on their own supply or they're just like in too deep and need to be pulled back. (laughs) Yeah. But I think too, it's like we, if you watch like Hallmark and all the stuff that's going to come out with these Christmas specials and things happening now, it's like that same optimism, that same hope, that same invitation to live in your imagination about what the future could be. Um, you know, that's what a lot of Christmas culture is. And like, that's why I think have yourself a merry little Christmas is sort of like an interesting counter. Like it sort of is a very melancholy song if you read the lyrics. And that to me, like, seems like that should be the carol that they Mm. kind of sit with during this. Um, like through the years we, we may all be together, but like, maybe not like, you know, that kind of room space for ambiguity is sort of like what's needed it reminds me of this ad i found um that i'll send to you that is literally of an empty chair and it's like this chair might be empty this year for just this year or forever and you're like whoa like this is dark um but at the same time it's like it's difficult to sit with the reality of how this war is affecting people's lives day to day even if you're sort of like deluding yourself or distracting yourself by worrying about like where you're going to get your christmas tree so i think it probably is hard <laughs> to talk about this and the strangeness of this time the empty chair is also a trope from the civil war right yeah like this notion of like will it be filled again will this person return home to our family um 
I have to say, when we asked listeners on Instagram, like how they think this one compares, I think you all just are too nice to us because you don't want to say anything bad about Molly. <laughs> wow. You can you can totally feel free to do that because we can take it. We We've can absolutely it take it. We've heard it all before. I did also love someone told us, I don't know, but someone needs to make this dress an adult size. And I couldn't agree more. Wow. I mean, put out a call. Maybe like these people are out here, these heroes. I did also love Disney Princess Lessons offers a lesson. And she says, it's my favorite. It taught me how to make Christmas special during tough times. And I, I think that's very, a very yes. real um, yes. and important reading of the book as well. It is. And I think this one has like probably the clearest conduit to our lives right now, which mm -hmm. is like, how do you allow yourself a space for joy um, at a time that's very sad for so many and, and which may include you as well. Like, you know, if you're a, a health line worker and you also want to celebrate Christmas, like it's probably going to look really different and feel really different. And yet you probably need to allow yourself that space for some kind of joy if you can, just because, you know, you just got to take it day by day. Like be the Molly you want to see in the world. That's what I'm oh hearing. Oh my God, Allison, what a lifestyle choice. I need that on a t-shirt. Wow. I mean, I don't think we can top that. I feel like we've peaked. Okay. So not to be too tacky, but like you did literally say, I want that on a shirt. Like, should we sure. tell the people? I think we should. This is very, very exciting news. So we've been working with um, the artists we've used previously to make merch for the show. Brie Morris, shout out to her. Great artist. And she has produced truly some amazing new designs. Like with a shockingly fast turnaround for the holidays, she was able to make some really cool designs for Addie, Samantha, and Molly. Um, we know that you were looking for them. It just took us a while to get things going. And we are going to try to get those up and out as soon as possible so that if you have something for the Molly, the Samantha, whoever in your life. Um, the you uncle have, guard aficionado. <laughs> the uncle guard. Like if you've ever wanted to say to someone, meet me at Piney Point. You're going to have something that you can show off instead, you know. Her take on Addie is so beautiful. We're so excited for you to see it. So we're really thrilled as always to work with her. It's, you know, if you ever wanted a shirt that said, I'm a Samantha with a beautiful illustration, like that can be yours. It's all happening. So please stay tuned for that. We're so excited to bring that to you. Um, if you're free the night of December 9th, um, come hang out with us and talk about friendship. And you can make a zine that you can sort of fill out and send to a friend um, after the chat. And, you know, just thank you so much for all your support of this show. We really do appreciate you listening. We know it's a tough time and it's only getting tougher. It feels like sometimes, um, especially in the winter and whatever. So we do appreciate you like spending some time in your day with us. We feel like we've gotten to know you. We hear from so many listeners and it really makes our day. So thanks for just like giving us that space in your life during a very stressful time. It really does mean a lot to us. And listen, I don't have a Spotify unwrapped either, but I, wow. I love when people tell us we're in their top. So, Oh my God. Yes. Let us know. I shared some of mine, but like mine was too dark. Like an ASMR track <laughs> was in my top 10, which I could not share because it was too dark. Although I just shared it now, but you know, it does really make our day. So thank you for that. Thank you. Those of you who support our Patreon. Thank you for listening. Allison, thank you. Maybe I don't thank you enough, but you know, Listen, too, I was thinking, I thought, you know, what the heck? I'm always asking, you know, you to do your own handle work. Yep. Mary, the people can find you in a lot of places as Mary Mahoney, one, two, three. Look at me. I just yep. did it. Or Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. But yeah, yeah. you did that. Thank you. <laughs> I did that half correctly. And yours is even easier, <laughs> which is it's literally just your name at Allison Horrocks on Twitter, on Instagram, everywhere you want to be. Maybe. And you can follow the show. Um, Mary taught me how to do a link tree so I can share more things now. Um, but that's the best way to find our store, to find our website. You can follow us at American Girls Podcast or A Girls Pod on Twitter. Um, and we love when you send us funny things there. Please do. So thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe. And we can't wait to see you at our next episode. Yes. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you.